I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonwealth Podcast. Among the things the Trump presidency will be remembered for is the cruelty of its policies and actions on immigration. But while images from the border of children in cages remain indelible, less well-known is what happened in courtrooms all across the country, where lawyers for the Trump administration actively worked to change the immigration system with one goal in mind, keeping people out. On this episode, Commonweal contributing writer Paul Moses speaks with Michael Kagan, an immigration lawyer and professor at UNLV Law School, about his new book, The Battle to Stay, Immigration's Hidden Front Line, and what we can expect from the incoming Biden administration when it comes to immigration policy. That's in a minute on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Paul. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Thanks, Dominic. So you've uh, been doing a lot of work on immigration, and you even wrote a story for us in uh, November called Collateral Damage, Our Broken Immigration System Harms All People Involved. And I was wondering if you could just maybe talk to the audience a little bit about how you came to think about or decide to talk to Michael Kagan. Yeah, I was, I've been doing some in-depth pieces on the immigration court system, looking especially at the amount of time that people are needlessly kept in jail, often just waiting for their cases to come up. And beyond that, the people who are jailed who are really not a flight risk or and certainly not a danger to anybody. So he had done uh, a scholarly article that I noticed on the subject I was looking into, which is delays from the time somebody is first arrested until when they finally get a first hearing before the judge. And unlike in criminal courts, where it has to happen within two days, it can take weeks and weeks in the immigration court system. So I contacted him about that, and he happened to mention at the end of our interview, oh, by the way, I've been working on a book. It should be coming out, you know, in a few months. And uh, so I made it my business to get it, and, Mm -hmm. and I certainly enjoyed it. Okay. Well, good. Why don't we take a listen to your talk? My name is Michael Kagan. I am a law professor and I run the immigration clinic at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I I wrote a book called The Battle to Stay in America about what I have seen here in Las Vegas, literally as people battle to stay with their families and stay in this country. It is part memoir and part of what I've seen on a personal level. And it's also part love letter to the immigrant community here in Las Vegas. I came here to Las Vegas simply because this is where I got a job and I wanted to be a law professor. And for a long time, I did not pay a great deal of attention to the community in which I was living. But like many other people over the last few years under President Trump, I have had to pay a lot more attention to my neighbors. And I I want to share with people like me what I understand about the immigration system. You talk a lot about your family in this book. Why is that? Well, uh, first and foremost, that's how I started to see more clearly the community in which I was living through my older daughter. You know, she herself personally feared deportation when she saw Donald Trump get elected. She was only 10 at the time, but also even more so through her friends. How many times since that night in 2016, she's come and told me that she's worried about one of her friends or, or more, usually more by one of their parents. I'm chaperoning field trips with undocumented immigrants, and I need to realize that. They're part of this community. Their kids are studying the same thing my kids are studying. They're in the same classes together. 
and just looking at my job at UNLV, you know, it's easy for a law professor to be really have his head in the clouds. But some of my students have DACA. Even more of them have undocumented immigrant parents. I have not been detached as a law professor the last few years. I uh, have seen this as an attack on the community in which I live, even if it's not first and foremost an attack on me personally. And I want more people like me, to be really blunt about it, more white Americans, more uh, people who have status and privilege and some power to see this as a personal attack on all of us. You said something maybe a little surprising in the book, which is that we owe President Trump some thanks for his handling of the immigration system. I wonder if you could explain why you would say that. I'm not sure I use the words of we owe President Trump thanks, but I think what you might be referring to is that I think that President Trump basically took the cruelties and the racism that has long been built into our immigration system and essentially gave it jet fuel. And as a result, I think a lot of people can see that more clearly, can see that the system really departed from assumptions we make about what justice and law mean in the United States of America. It's been difficult for me to, to be optimistic, but if, if I can be, it's, it's that I think more people understand the problem of our immigration laws. And, and there is polling data, if you polls are controversial, but there is polling data showing that Americans are essentially more pro-immigrant now than they were really at any time in, in modern history. And I think President Trump had something to do with that. What worries me now is that now that he's leaving, at least leaving the White House. Where will we go? Right, where will we go and where will all, a lot of the people who have been awakened to the cruelty of our immigration system, will they remember all the things that need to be changed? Or will people just say, okay, thankfully someone more dignified and less racist is in the White House so we can forget about it? And that would be really unfortunate and actually scary in the long run. I also want to say something else about the experience of being an immigration lawyer, which is that we have to see, look into this cruelty every day in our email inbox. You know, we have to see new policies come down the pipeline. And constantly, I have found myself in the last four years shocked that there's even anyone who wants to do some of the things that have been done. There was a point in which the, the administration was trying to expel kids who come to the United States for medical treatment. I was not aware that there were people opposed to giving medical treatment to kids, right? to sick kids. I, I just didn't. And staring right. down that into that cruelty through the lens of legal policies every day takes a toll on you. Sometimes, you know, we can see with policies coming into force the dangers that haven't even hit the community yet. Right. And that's a burden, I think, for all immigration lawyers in seeing that detail. And you so often have to give bad news. Absolutely. And that's, that's something that I learned early in my career. The government doesn't go and look someone in the face and say, we want you out. We will now take you from your children. Often it's the, the lawyer who is trying to actually help that person who has to explain it. It's, an, it's a very high burden. How does the uh, immigration court system differ from, I, well, I guess I would call the regular court system, the criminal courts? First of all, 
the immigration courts are not courts and they're not about immigration. So they're not courts because they are not part of the judicial branch. They are part of the Department of Justice. So they work, the boss of the immigration courts is William Barr right now. And then they aren't immigration courts, they're deportation courts. The reason people are brought to immigration court is because the Department of Homeland Security, ICE, wants to deport them, wants to take them out of this country. They really only handle deportation cases. They have very limited jurisdiction. You can't go to this court because you want a visa to immigrate legally. Often immigration judges can see in front of them that the person that ICE wants to deport may be eligible for a visa but they are to stay legally, but they're powerless to grant it. And essentially, the Trump administration has used this apparatus very intelligently for their purposes. They've been inside the machine and they've turned its dial so that the, the safety valves don't work and the brakes don't work. It really can only do one thing, which is push forward to deportation. So you're saying whatever leeway there were in the immigration laws, that they've tried to take it away, essentially. Right. And I have... I've talked to police officers in Las Vegas who imagine that when someone is sent to immigration court, that they're, they're very sympathetic. They've lived here 20 years and they've coached soccer and they're active in their church. That I talked to police officers who imagine that they'll be able to put all these facts in front of the immigration judge and won't that be taken into consideration before ordering people deported? And someone who has experience in criminal court might think that because those things are taken into account in criminal courts in lots of ways when we consider whether to let someone post bond or be released on their own recognizance and in sentencing. But in immigration court, often those human factors that most of us consider to be very important are not allowed to be considered. The judge isn't allowed to consider them except in really, really narrow circumstances. And so we just mechanically order people pulled out of our community and expelled. And that's what these non-courts do. What proportion of those brought up on uh, deportation charges have a lawyer in Las Vegas? Right. Well, Las Vegas is pretty typical in this way. For those who are not detained, about one in four go without a lawyer. That's a lot. But then if you look at those who are locked up, three out of four don't have a lawyer. Right. What are their chances? Well, their chances are almost zero without a lawyer. And the data on that is extremely clear. With a lawyer, their chances might double or triple, even more than that for some types of people. I have watched in immigration court when someone without a lawyer on a video screen, they're not even brought in person to the court, talk in a language they don't understand, says, I want to ask for bond through an interpreter to the judge. And the judge says, well, that's fine, but you have to submit it in writing. You know, in, in Las Vegas Justice Court, you can ask for a bond verbally. But in sure. immigration court, someone who doesn't speak English and has no lawyer, even when they've made a clear request that everyone in the room understands, it won't be considered unless they manage to write it down in English and get it to the court through the mail. It's one of the little things that just makes things even harder for people and they don't have a lawyer. They, a lot of people in the United States don't realize that the federal government can detain you on non-criminal immigration grounds for months on end and you won't get a lawyer. Is there a limit to how long they can hold you? Or is it, or is it sort of hazy? <laughs> hazy. And it's hotly contested. A lot of litigation, a lot of very unclear constitutional litigation 
about that exact issue. How long can they detain someone on a non-criminal ground without a court even giving them a bond hearing? That's an unclear question across the country, and it depends on a whole lot of technicalities, but the Supreme Court's yet to really give a clear answer. So the, the answer might be indefinitely. It might be a long time. It's definitely a long time. I have one client who has been fighting his deportation for four and a half years, still detained, and we've not been able to get a bond hearing for him. And we have other clients routinely waiting months, sometimes over a year, very common to wait over a year. And people, we often have these conversations with our clients, people, clients who are just don't, don't want to fight anymore. The government can wear people down, even for someone who might in the end legally be able to avoid deportation. And often it's clients who have the gravest fear of persecution abroad. It's, it's that they fear torture in another country is the only thing that makes it logical for them to stay in ICE detention. Support for Commonweal comes from Simon & Schuster, publishers of Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future by Pope Francis. In his most personal and inspiring writing yet, Pope Francis discusses how we can emerge from the COVID crisis stronger and more unified than ever. To come out of this crisis better, we have to see clearly, choose well, and act right. Let's talk about how Let Us Dare to Dream writes Pope Francis in Let Us Dream, before providing a blueprint for a more equitable society, one ready to confront income inequality, climate change, and other major issues facing the world with love, compassion, and faith. Let Us Dream by Pope Francis is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. You talked about some of the common concerns that people will raise about immigrants and immigration. I'll give you one of them that I hear. My people came here legally. Why don't they? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. There's a lot in that. First of all, a lot of Americans have a misunderstanding of how their own people came here. I myself, I do a lot of family history research, and the earliest record I've been able to find on my family is uh, the 1930 census, where my great-grandmother, Lily Bernstein, was recorded as uh, an AL on the census form alien. But I don't know how she got here. Uh, I've got no record of that. So, So I can only go by profile of how, you know, you know, a Polish Jewish immigrant likely would have come here in the early 1920s. Uh, but I have nothing specifically on her, undocumented, you could say. Yeah. I think a lot more Americans probably uh, it might be surprised by the way people came into the country. But I think that question about the past relates to something about the present, which is, and about how we understand law in America. I think a lot of well-meaning people do not understand why so many people enter the country illegally, because we're a country that respects doing things the right way. If you put an addition on your house, you should get a permit for it. One of the purposes I wanted to accomplish in my book is to explain through real people who I know here in Las Vegas why people came illegally. I use uh, an example of a, of a family. I tell the whole story of a family, remarkable family with three kids, one of who's a graduate of UNLV, one of their daughters as an elite scholarship for the local 
ballet theater. The middle daughter is taking AP classes and going to go to college. And the, the parents both work in the, in the food industry. And tragically, actually, the mom just died of COVID this month. They're, they were chefs. I mean, and, and an amazing, beautiful family. They came 18, 19 years ago. They came illegally. And I, I do not beat around that bush. I'm very direct about that. But I very clearly explain why. People like this, we have no space for them in our immigration law. And not only did the, 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 when people say, why don't they come legally? I think it's an interesting phrasing because they may imagine that there's a legal way to come. And if there were, it would be entirely appropriate to be judgmental towards those who choose an illegal route when a legal route is available. But there is no legal route available for people. And I think it's interesting rhetorically. Most good people can't bring themselves to say, I just don't want you. But that's what the law says. So when we say, why don't they come legally? I think some people may genuinely mean that, but not realize that we haven't given them a legal path. And so to say that to someone is to say, I don't want you at all. But for people whose options were to come illegally or not to come at all. Now, a lot of times when we refer to somebody as illegal, they actually may have come to the border and turned themselves in and requested asylum, which is an entirely legal process. Can you explain that a little bit? Right. Well, we have an asylum system and a refugee system in the United States. Donald Trump has done a great deal to dismantle it in a number of different ways. But if you can reach U.S. borders, you are supposed to be able to apply for asylum by going to a port of entry. One of the, that has been blocked in a, through layers of different policies in this administration. But one of the first was something called metering, which was where if you went to the port of entry to try to come in legally and say, I need to seek asylum, they would say, well, we can only process three people today, or we can only process 12 people today. Put your name on this list. And these lists grew longer and longer and longer. And people were being People who were saying, I am in danger. That's why I need to come and seek asylum. Being made to wait in border towns at the mercy of criminal gangs with no means of supporting themselves for weeks, months. And only recently has have it been become clear, Freedom of Information Act documents and other documents making clear that this really was the policy to artificially limit those numbers. You may remember there was a terrible death, a uh, father and, and, and child in the river. Right. And photos broadcast, and they were on one of those lists. They tried to come to the legal port of entry and seek asylum in a way that our law provides for. And they were told, no, no, it's no capacity. Wait for months and months and months. It was during that waiting, that's when they decided to go across that river and died. And that's yeah. their representative of many others. Yes. One of the, I think, heartbreaking things, too, is that many of the people who've been coming from Central America their requests for asylum, their, their fears that they have of returning don't fit in really well. They don't fit the categories of political persecution or religious persecution. How to deal with that going forward? We are you know, seeing a change in administrations. Can determinations made by Trump administration attorneys general be uh, just reversed? or are they kind of embedded in the law as, you know, interpreted by the Board of Immigration Appeals and the federal courts? 
so in our asylum law, something this is again it's like something that I think many people do not understand as well as they might. That you, of course, you have to show I am genuinely in danger of being persecuted. I'm genuinely in danger of being hurt very severely. But it is not enough to show that someone would kill me or rape me. You have to be killed or raped for the right reason, or we send you back to the killer. That's our law. It has been our law for a long time. Now, this is abused by the government in a lot of ways, especially rhetorically. So people will get denied where the government agrees, yes, you're going to be hurt by a gang, but then will disagree on whether it's the right legal technicalities. And then the government will say, look, these are fraudulent asylum seekers because they lost. But there's no fraud. It's us. We're making the decision not to protect a person we know is in danger. Now, there are a lot of re complicated reasons why that's in the law, but there's also a lot of interpretive room on that. Joe Biden, actually, during the Democratic primary, was, the, I believe, the first of the candidates to promise to reverse some of what Trump's attorney generals did to restrict this even further uh, than it was before. So he, he restricted access for people fleeing from, say, domestic violence. Which I've also seen entangled in the politics in yeah, some cases. totally. Absolutely. We are fighting cases of teenagers in Las Vegas. I, we have clients, asylum cases started under President Obama, who were, are fleeing rape. And the Department of Homeland Security vigorously fought their asylum, and the immigration courts denied them asylum. And they've, those cases are just continuing on autopilot through the court system. Those started with Obama, not Trump. And they could have started with Bush or Clinton. I mean, we could reform our asylum laws through Congress, but the attorney general can also think about how do I need to interpret this. So, for example, it's in the law that you have to be persecuted for one of five specific reasons. But the attorney general could decide, if you've already shown that you have a well-founded fear of persecution, we can be more lenient in how we interpret the rest of that definition because we've already decided you're, you're genuinely in danger instead of being as strict as possible. Maybe in the short term, what do you think? might be done to improve the system? And then what are some some of the longer-term things that you know, might require legislation? So obviously, a bit more cause for optimism now after Biden's victory. But it's not going to solve everything. Now, I am optimistic about some things, and I'm concerned about some other things. The points of optimism, I think that Biden likely will do a lot to shield undocumented immigrants who are inside the United States from at least the worst cruelties of the immigration system. That means things like doing whatever he can to strengthen DACA and extending it, same for temporary protected status, but also other undocumented immigrants, at least having enforcement priorities so that ICE doesn't target most undocumented immigrant families. I'm more worried about whether he will reverse some of all of Trump's policies at the border but that gets to a longer-term problem. Obviously, we don't know about the Georgia special elections, but given the makeup of the Senate, one would have to be very skeptical about the prospects for major legislation that would reshape the immigration system, which means that four years from now, whoever is elected the next presidential election may inherit a legal architecture very similar to what we have now. I think we need to change the dynamics of immigration policy and politics 
in order to ever get to the point where the laws can change. First of all, as, as we talked about, it can't just be people directly affected pushing for this. They should be at the, they, at the forefront and they will be. But there also have to be more people like me who can choose not to pay attention to this. We also have to be part of that fight. We can't just treat this as a marginal issue. Also, we have to look at immigration as a good thing. A lot of immigration politics has been, even in the Democratic Party, has started from the idea that we should try to keep people from coming to the border. And that's a real problem. We cannot really be claimed to be advocates for immigrants if we actually don't want immigrants to come. And so if we treat coming to the border as a bad thing that we need to deter, we will find ourselves trapped in a spiral of, of more and more cruelty to people. President Obama got himself into that trap. I hope Joe Biden doesn't, but I also hope that we start to, to just talk much more directly about immigration as a good thing. We want to be a country that people want to come to, and then we ought to have a legal means of welcoming them. I think migration is a natural human behavior and it's a human good. It's like housing. I mentioned getting a permit to add on to your house. We ought to have a permit system for, for home construction. A lot of good reasons for that. We want it to be safe and we don't want it to be chaotic. But you don't want to have a system of requiring permits to build houses, houses that lead people to be homeless, that lead people to not be able to repair their plumbing. And essentially, that's what's happened with our immigration system. We have an immigration system, the legal immigration system cannot meet basic human needs. And so the same thing that would happen if we had that in uh, housing regulation, if, if my hot water heater breaks and I'm supposed to get a permit to replace it, but the city won't give me a permit or will tell me I have to wait 15 years, uh, I'm going to buy a hot water heater to get my family hot water immediately. And if I end up doing that illegally, I will. Because it's a basic human need. And that's what's happened with our immigration system. We need this idea of open borders. It's more about actually law and order actually would be a better way of thinking about it. We could have a great welcoming immigration system that is also lawful and orderly in which there'd be every reason to come down very hard on people who choose to go illegally. But you can only get to that if you really do give people a, a lawful and orderly way of immigrating. Looking ahead, uh, helpful, skeptical? <laughs> I'm worried ahead. I, I think that we, obviously we've just had a victory and it's, it's not a small one. Trump in a second term it would have made the first term look like uh, preseason. It, it would have been awful and we have avoided that. Obviously, Donald Trump's brand of politics has a lot of support. He got a record number of votes too. Biden won only because he got a bigger record number of votes. And in very close elections in swing states, we've got four years to try to make sure that our neighbors are much more better defended than they were four years ago, because this may happen again. We may have another round of a demagogic president who plays on racism and xenophobia and turns the full power of the federal government against them. I worry about the tendency to just put all hope in Joe Biden because we don't know for sure what he's going to do. We don't know for sure what obstacles he's going to confront. So we have to drive in all lanes. And that means lawyers like me are part of it. But we have to be able to work with community organizers. We have to be able to work with people who are directly affected. And we have to get more people to understand why all of us are affected by an attack on our community. 
if you come for my neighbor, you come for me. And I, I think that we have to have that mentality with immigration. That is the only way I think that we will make sure all our neighbors are defended and as secure as possible. And hopefully, eventually, we'll have a different legal system. Professor Kagan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I'm really grateful to talk about the battle to stay in America. And I want to encourage people, don't. If you have been alarmed by the cruelty of what you've seen in the immigration system under Trump, know that cruelty is still built into the system and that, that monster is still there. And we have to work together to eliminate it from this country. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.